Good morning. Happy Father's Day. Thank you. You're too kind. Um, my second Father's Day, so uh, very, very exciting. And uh, due to uh, popular demand and the emails I get more than any other emails, um, I brought a picture of the girls, so you can be satisfied. Um, so they are. Yep, they are. They are somehow amazingly cute. Yeah, it's... I'm not sure. The Lord is a miracle worker. Yeah. So Camille's on the left and Macy's on the right. Probably. Yep. 90, 95% sure. I know one of them is one of them. So we're good there. Um, and uh, we had a great, a great uh, day yesterday. Um, we went strawberry picking. And Camille had about, once she realized you could both pick the strawberry and eat it, I think that was... I think all she wants to do the rest of her life is then do that because it's just, and so she had about 20 strawberries and then we came home and dad, uh, you know, she just loved them so much and why would you ever say no to your kids, right? They, they know what they want. And so she had like 20 more strawberries. And then we came to church last night. I'll put it, I'll put it to you this way. Um, and the girls came too. Uh, I'll put it to you this way. Uh, the, <laughs> The shorts that Camille came to church in <laughs> were not the shorts that she left in. And so if you work downstairs, um, Wayne, I, I'm sorry for what happened last night. Um, that was a category five. Wow, that was, <laughs> you know, you get, you get, you get um, the people that work down, down um, below just do such a great and good job. And I, I, I know that, but uh, I came, I was done preaching last night, you know, feeling the spirit. I'm like, man, things happen. It was just a powerful service, you know? And I come downstairs ready to, you know, basically to be welcomed by everyone. And then Macy's just crying and pooping. And it's just like, get a diaper. And Emily's like, get over here, like do this. And, and it's just like, here it is. So that's parenthood, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're on this high. And then the babies just confront you with all of their needs and you just enter into it. Right, you enter into it because they're your kids and you love them and you'll do anything for them. And they, they demand everything, but they give you everything. And no matter if you had a good father or a bad father or no father, through Jesus Christ, you have an eternal father. And because of what Jesus has done for us and in us, this is a good day for all of us if we're in Christ. And one day soon, we will get to see him, right? And he'll hold us and everything will be okay. But until then, we have the presence of the Spirit, and until then, we have the gospel to guide us and to help us. Last week, we talked about this. If you weren't here, I missed you. Where were you? I'm just kidding. Um, it's good to see you. And um, last week, we talked about the parable of the Minas, where Jesus said, how you live in between my first coming and my second coming says everything about who you are and about what you love and who you love. And so using everything that God's given us to make much of him and to bless others is the purpose of our life. And the way that you use not just your money, but everything in your life says who your Lord is and who your king is. Because one day he's returning and he's going to say, what did you do? I wasn't kidding. It's all mine and I gave it to you. And what we come to now is right after that parable, we come to what is usually called Palm Sunday in the church calendar. And we're coming to that part of Luke's gospel, Luke 19. If you have a Bible, Luke chapter 19 will be in verses 28 through 44. Luke 19, 28 through 44. I'm going to read it, and then we'll talk about it um, as well. 28 through 44. After Jesus had said this, which is the parable I just talked about, so now you're caught up. 
He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. Verse 31. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks along the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, um, this is Palm Sunday, right? And usually we, we sadly kind of just bypass it and kind of give an acknowledgement to it um, and say it's Palm Sunday and then we kind of move on to the rest of the week. And so what I wanted to do is to figure out why does Palm Sunday matter? Like what's happening here in Luke chapter 19? And not just say, well, because it's Palm Sunday RD, very good, let's move on. But to say, why are people... Uh, shouting Hosanna. Luke doesn't say that, but uh, Matthew and Mark say that Hosanna is being shouted by the people. And John notes that they're waving palm branches to Jesus. There's this big, basically a parade, a, a processional. And what we want to say is not, well, it's Palm Sunday. That's why. Okay. There's no Palm Sunday in the Bible. So why are the disciples doing this? What do they think they're doing? And who do they think Jesus is? And why does it matter for us in 2015 in Madison, Wisconsin? Besides it just being interesting history, and let's get to the main event, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Those are central, but without Palm Sunday, there is no Good Friday. There is no Resurrection Sunday. And so we want to slow down and see why the celebration, why the palm branches, why the hosannas, what is happening in this Jesus? What is he embodying? What is he doing? And how can it change? How did it change everything, and how can it change everything? In order to do that, we have to go back to the beginning, okay? Last week I did this too, a little history lesson. So you're gonna get it again. And like I said last week, the Bible is not a math book. I know many of you were like, amazing insight, RD. And I, thank you. Not a science book, and it's not just a set of propositional truths, right? The Bible is a story, and it begins in a kingdom, which is called Eden. It's the world that God made, and God is the king, and he rules and he reigns over it. And kingdom is not just kind of God's the king and he's in a castle. Kingdom means a place where God's presence dwells, where there's shalom and wholeness and justice and beauty. All of these things are what Eden is. Genesis 1 and 2, the world begins good because God makes it, and he rules there. And he makes Adam and Eve, and he makes them as what we call his vice regents. They rule and they reign as well, but it's under God, right? And God says, this is how you worship me. You cultivate the land, right? You live together. He does doesn't give him a guitar and say, worship me. Though you can worship God that way. He says, actually, it's how you live. That's how you do it. It's how you take care of the earth. It's how you actually, right, allow my presence to fill all things. That's what it looks like. And yet, what do they do? They take the crown from God's head and they put it on their own heads. And they say, thanks, God. Helpful to get us here. 
will take it from here. And they believe the lie of the enemy that says you can be good without God. You don't need God to be fulfilled or happy. You can achieve your own kingdom on your own. That's what happens. And because of that, they're exile, which is a biblical word that means you're now separated from all of the wholeness and the shalom, the peace of Eden. Now we were blocked from having that. And all you have to do is look at the world and say we are blocked from that. The world doesn't look like that. But good news, the Bible doesn't end in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, God comes back. He creates a people, the people of Israel, and says, through this people, all the world will be blessed. Through this people, all the darkness will be pushed Push back. That's the call of Abram, that through you all of the world will see a great light. And God uses the people of Israel, a family of broken men and women, to be his redemptive agent in the world. And he is their king. Yahweh is their king, right? They don't have a human king because he is the king. And he's come to them, and he loves them and cares for them and pursues them and has a purpose for them to fill the earth once again with Eden. And yet, what do they do as well? God saves them from Egypt, right? We have the Exodus account, which is the gospel in the Old Testament. They were in slavery, and then God frees them. And yet, soon after that, they're basically like, we want to go back to Egypt because it was better there. And they begin worshiping cows. And you're thinking, they, uh, what's happening here? The, the role of the people of Israel is then being destroyed. And we, we keep going. And what we see in 1 Samuel chapter 4 is that the people then want a human king. Because all the other nations have a human king and, and God being their king, this invisible king they can't see, uh, we don't really want him to be our king. We want a human king like all the other nations have because we want to be like all the other nations. And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, still very on in the biblical account, this is what it says. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old, which is never a good way to start things. Okay, it's just not, this is not going to go well. You are old. And your sons do not follow your ways, also not good. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. There it is. That's what's wrong with it. Verse 6, but when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. This is who they are. This is who we are. They don't want God to be king. They want their own king. And so God, in his grace, though, doesn't say, well, forget you guys. All right, I'm going to start another planet. No, he gives them kings in his grace. And we have Saul and David and Solomon, the first three kings of the united people of Israel. And these are kings who do some wonderful things. And at the center of that is King David, this great king, this glorious king. And yet a king who still falls short of doing what a king should do, which is to bring the rule of God on earth, to establish shalom, to establish justice, uh, to be a light to the nations. And he can't do that because David is broken. And even though David is the great example in the Old Testament that the people look to and say, that was a great king, he falls and he fails. And Solomon does as well. And Saul does as well. And the story of the Old Testament is king after king after king and one queen who falls short of doing what God has commanded them to do. And the world suffers and humanity suffers. And the great Jewish hope running throughout Genesis 3 all the way to Malachi is that one day, maybe, God will truly bring us out of exile and there will be a king who will be greater than Solomon, greater than David, greater than Saul, and he will be on the throne. It will be God himself. And we are longing for that day. If you read the Old Testament that way, that's what it is. Read the Psalms. Read Isaiah. They're longing for this great king to come and save them. 
Now you may be thinking, that's a wonderful story. That's the Old Testament, fantastic. <laughs> well, it's not just a Jewish hope, it's a human hope. You say, well, we don't have kings in America, right? We are Americans, right? We have no sovereign here. That's why we left England, to get rid of the kings. And I would just say to you, you are fooling yourself. With all due respect. All of us, me, you, we serve someone, we serve something. All of us. No one lives for nothing. No one, no one is just being and not living for anything and having nothing pull at their heart. All of us have crowned someone or something that is not God. And ultimately, functionally, that is what we worship and that is what we look to. We, we've crowned it because, right, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote Lord of the Rings, he says, once we left the garden, people were soaked in a sense of exile, dripping with exile, and yet trying to find a way back to the garden. And we make all of these other gods. C.S. Lewis as always, he puts it this way. He says, where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead. Even famous prostitutes or gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food and it will gobble poison. Okay, I'll read it again. Where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead, even famous prostitutes or gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. Now, what he's saying there is very profound. And if you've studied or know anything about people that are starving, you'll know that at the end, when they're truly starving, not just hungry, but truly starving, they will eat anything, right? Even, even a piece of wood. Anything around them, they will begin to eat. Why? Because you have to eat food or you die. And your body is hardwired to eat food. And if it doesn't eat food, right, even if you see a piece of wood and you're starving, you will eat it, even though it will kill you. And what C.S. Lewis is saying, he's saying, if you do not worship the true king, the one king, you will put someone or something else on the throne and worship it. But that is only a poison because they cannot bear the weight of all of your longing and all of your hope and all of your love. Right, and so you just, things that we crown in our culture, whether, I mean, a huge one that a lot of people deal with, I mean, I deal with too, right, is acceptance. I want people to accept me. And there's nothing wrong with that. You shouldn't go around being a jerk, okay, and just be like, no one accept me. But at the same time, if you, you know acceptance is your God and is your crown, if you are absolutely devastated when someone doesn't accept you, when someone rejects you, instead of being like, man, that's unfortunate, why are you just so mean, you can't get out of your bed. Right? You're absolutely just, you're weeping and crying. Why? Because acceptance was your God. And someone's words were more valuable to you than the words of what God says about you. Right? You may say, yeah, I know God loves me, but what that person said really cut me to the core, which means that person's words are more real to you than God's words. Right? Your career. Careers are good things, not bad things. We, should, we can all have careers. But if a career becomes something that you look to and say, if I can just get that job, if I could just do that, if I could just get that promotion, if you look at that as um, your everything, then you're going to be in trouble, right? Because you, right, your career doesn't serve you, right? You serve your career, right? You serve it, and it makes you a slave to it, and that can be good or bad, right? A clean house, that can be a god, right? <laughs> Got to be clean, got to be put together. And by clean house, I mean a life that's put together as well, right? Because people can't see that things are actually broken or kind of messed up. And if people actually saw that, if they actually saw the real me, it'd be devastating. We put a crown on our heads that says we're put together, we're okay, right? And if people saw that we weren't, we would be crushed and devastated, right? A political cause, a social cause, that can be a massive, a massive one. 
right? That is what you're living for. This thing that happened, and, and, and these things can be good things, right? But if that's all you're living for, it makes everyone else an enemy, right? If someone doesn't believe in that as much as you do, you look at them and say, you are evil, right? You are wrong. And we demonize them. Why? Because this, this cause that can be so good is your life. And anyone that rejects it, you just say, forget you, right? Romance, relationships. If someone says, I don't like you, I don't love you, you're devastated. Why? Because deep down, right, love and people, their affection, all of that, they're just gods. They're crowns. I mean, I could keep going through the list. You can name anything. And what, what I want us to do is to be self-aware and not to be so silly or arrogant as to say, I don't have one. I live for me. I'm independent. I don't have these issues. Okay. If you live for your independence, that's your God. <laughs> because what if your independence gets taken away from you? You have kids, <laughs> right? You get married, someone lives with you, and you think, I was just living for me. I was just having a good life. I, I, you know, Jesus is helpful, but I'm living for me. And someone comes in and takes it away from you. You're angry and devastated, and all of these things happen. Why? Because your independence was, on your, was your crown. That was it. Right? We all have these things that we serve and love. Why is that? Why as people can we not just be? Why do we have to look to something and crown it? Here's why I think. Because all of us, though we are soaked in a sense of exile, we all remember deep, deep down in our hearts and our minds, we all remember at one point before the breaking of the world where we stood before a glorious king and his beauty and his honor and his majesty was like the rising of the sun. And we stood before him. And deep, deep down, you and I remember that, and we remember him. But because of the breaking of the world, because of sin, we now look to all these other things, and we say, well, just put that crown on my head. That will be what I need. Right? And so both the human hope and the Old Testament hope is that one day someone is coming who can actually bear the weight of that. Someone who's, who can really fix things, who can really change things, who can really do what we need him to do. Not just a king we look to and say, oh, what a great example, but a king we can look to and actually has changed us. And Luke 19 is saying, here he is. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what Palm Sunday is about. That's, the, that's why people are shouting Hosanna, right? Not because they're supposed to, so it'll be in the gospel later, but because they've been waiting for hundreds of years for someone to come, and the people really believe this is him. And the disciples are thinking, yes, <laughs> yes, here we go. Here we go. We've been waiting, and you're finally here. And yet this king is far different from all other kings. King Jesus is very different. Three things we're going to learn in this text about King Jesus. He's a humble king. Um, he's a weeping king, and he's a saving king. Humble king, weeping king, and saving king. And if you've been reading Luke's gospel closely enough, you will know that Luke has been setting this up from the very beginning, that Jesus is not just a good teacher. He's the king. He's the once and future king. If you, Luke 1 says this would be on the screen. We, we read this a long time ago, but it, it sets the whole stage of the gospel. The angel comes to Mary and says this about Jesus. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne, there it is, of his father David. 
a greater David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And so Luke has been saying from the very beginning, this is a king. This is the one who we've been waiting for. And all that Jesus has been doing in his life is showing you what the kingdom looks like when it comes in power and what a king looks like, who he is and what he embodies. And Luke 19 is going to be getting close to the crescendo of that. What kind of king is Jesus? And even more importantly, how does his kingship actually change your life? Because it does. It can. Okay, number one, um, a humble king. A humble king. What does Jesus roll up in the town on? <laughs> a tank? Class? No. Okay, good. You read closely enough, right? The Greek does not mean tank. Okay, it is not. In the first century, especially, um, when a victorious general or a king would come from a battle that he just won, all of the city would go out to greet him, like they're doing Jesus, except it'd be even more. They'd go out to greet him, and they'd welcome him back into the city. And so you'd have uh, trumpets and instruments, and you'd have the king, and he'd be on a war horse, or he'd be on a chariot, and people would be worshiping him and bowing down before him. And they would all go out to the city because he was victorious, and they're worshiping him. And he, of course, would be like, yes, I am awesome. I am victorious. Worship me. And he would come into the city, and that was how they, all the kings came in. Right, because they're strong and in power and, you know, they always want to save face and all that stuff. And yet, what do we see Jesus coming into town on? A baby colt. A baby donkey. Can you imagine the disciples who know the Old Testament better than you and I do? Their whole lives are hoping for this king to come, that Jesus is the one. And they're thinking, we've got the war horse ready. We're ready to carry the chariot, Lord. We're ready to go. And Jesus gives them the assignment. They're like, yes, Lord, give it to us. He says, go, uh, go get an animal. And they're like, all right, where's the war horse? And they get to this house and it's a baby colt that has never been ridden. So it's like this big, basically, right? It's so small. And they're like, okay, this must be something that I'm riding on, maybe. Like we're riding in front of him, of course. And the war some other disciples are getting the war horse. And so they come back to Jesus and Jesus is like, put me on. And, and they're like, oh, we're never going to understand him. <laughs> right? We're, we're never, we're never going to get it. Why are you marketing PR fail, Jesus? All the kings come in on a war horse in power and glory with a sword. And you're going to ride on this baby donkey? Right? In fact, some scholars think that um, at the very same time, maybe not the same day, but the same week, that Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor in uh, Jerusalem at the time, he lived in the west of Israel by the ocean. And during Passover week, which is this week, there'd be about 300,000 Jews in Jerusalem because they'd all would come to commemorate the Passover where God passed over the sins of the people um, in, in Egypt. And so he would come back to make sure there would be order. And he'd be coming from the west in this great processional right? On the chariot, on the war horse, the people worshiping him, all this pomp and circumstance. And possibly the same day, certainly around the same time, you have Jesus Christ coming in from the east, from the Mount of Olives. A much greater king, but a much more humble king coming in on a baby colt on a donkey. And what is he doing? He's fulfilling prophecy. He's not just saying, I think I want a colt. He's fulfilling prophecy. Zechariah 9.9, written hundreds of years before this, says this. And it's talking, it's talking about Jesus. Zechariah 9.9, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is saying, um, you can either be someone who uses power the way of Pontius Pilate in Rome, on a tank, basically, right, with a sword, on the war horse, or you can use power like this in humility 
in vulnerability and innocence. There are two ways to live in the world. One is the way of the sword that leads to death. One is the way of the cult that leads to life. It may lead to death, but it leads to life. Right? Jesus Christ models this. This is what power looks like. And so he's unbelievably humble. And the disciples, once again, must be like, we don't understand. Right? But one day they would. This is what power looks like in the kingdom of God. Jesus is a humble king, not arrogant. Though he has every right to be whatever he wants, he's humble. Secondly, he's not just a humble king, he's a weeping king. Verse 41 is in my Mount Rushmore verses, which I have because I'm a nerd like that. But it's up there. 1941 is one of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. Jesus says, or Luke writes, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And in the Greek, the phrase he wept over it, uh, literally, it doesn't mean that he had a tear in his eye and he just kept moving. It actually, in the Greek, it literally means he wailed and he sobbed uncontrollably. Right? And so now you have the disciples. And what happens when people cry? Usually you get nervous, right? Right? Don't you get nervous when people cry? It's like, I mean, you kind of hug them, but it's also like, oh, dear. And so you have all the disciples in there thinking, now Jesus is going to be on the throne. The war is about to start, and he's on a donkey, and then he just starts bawling. And they're like, hey, this man's lost it. <laughs> right? He's had a mental break. He's lost it. He's not in control. This can't be our king. Right? If you're there, that's what you're thinking. Thinking, this is not a king. This is a man who's just been defeated, and yet he's weeping. And why is he weeping? Not because he's lost control in a sense, but because he's in complete control. When he gets, when he looks at the city of Jerusalem and he sees all the people, all of them who he knows by names, right? He says, if only you'd known what meant for peace and yet you've rejected me. And he's weeping and wailing for the people. That's who God is at his heart. Not saying, here I come, everyone's going to be destroyed. The war is about to start. No, he comes on a donkey weeping, because that's the kind of king he is. And there's never been a king like that. Right? that. That's who he is. And so, guys, listen to me. As Christians, we should be people who weep as well. We should be people who lament, but lament in hope, not hopelessness. But I get so tired when I just feel like Christianity becomes this happy, happy, rah, rah club. You know what I mean? And so here's where I'm going to throw somebody on the bus. So just, I don't, it doesn't matter, right? Um, I mean, I listen to Christian radio sometimes. Yeah, here's where I go. And on uh, 102.5, you know, which is not wrong to be uplifting and encouraging, but that's their motto, right? Uplifting, encouraging. And sometimes I'm like, you know what? I wish sometimes you just lament. And I wish sometimes you just be sad. But in our culture, even in Christian culture, we just feel like that's awkward and weird. So just kind of put your tears over here. I know maybe your life is totally devastated, but come to church and just clap and be happy. And we're going to sing some high-powered songs, and everyone's just going to leave here happy because that's what being a Christian is. Well, that's not what it is, right? Just take people to Luke 19.41, where the God of the universe weeps and cries and wails and sobs uncontrollably over people who put crowns on their head over and over and over again. Man, what a God. He's like us. He understands. And so if we are not a people who weep, we are not the people of Jesus. We're not. I remember the first time I saw my mom cry. I was five or six, and you know, when you're that age, you just, your parents are gods. And I know things change, <laughs> what I hear. Um, I remember, because I changed. Um, 
And, but you just think they're just above you, my mom and my dad, and they just, nothing can hurt them, right? They're unhurtable. And that's why I always go to them. And I would cry and I would break down. I stub my toe and I would just wail. And she would just come from me and help me. And I was like, you're the strong one, right? You're put together and, and I can always go to you. I remember the first time I ever saw my mom cry. I was like, I didn't even know moms did that, <laughs> right? And I saw her cry and I remember just thinking, wow, you're, you're human too. And every time after that, when I went to her and cry, I remember her crying. And I thought, you know, you know what it's like to cry. And my tears somehow made more sense, and they had more power. Now, the difference between my mom and me as a five-year-old and you and Jesus is completely, right? You know what I'm saying? And yet he cries. And so he knows what tears are like. He gets it, guys. He gets it. You're thinking of people in your family, you're weeping over, you're crying over. You're thinking of things in our city, you're weeping over it, and you're crying. You're thinking of things in our nation, you're weeping over it, and you're crying over it. And Jesus says, yes, yes, enter in and be okay to stay there a little bit longer than it's uncomfortable. And then the gospel's really going to work through that. That's what Jesus does. If only you'd known this day that peace was a person, but now it's hidden from your eyes. And he's weeping, and he's sad. He's a weeping king. And he's such a good king. He's not just a humble king, though that's good. And he's not just a weeping king, though that's good. Listen, what you and I need is not just a humble king and not just a weeping king. You and I need someone who can actually wipe the tears from our eyes, truly. Right? You and I need someone who can actually change us from the inside out. You and I need a king who actually knows us and loves us and can change us, who's not just a good example, who's not just someone we can look to and say, oh, I want to be more humble, or I want to cry, but someone we can look to who can actually change us and change the world. Someone who looks at the heart of darkness and doesn't say nothing can be done, but looks at the heart of darkness and says, I know what has to be done. That's Jesus Christ. Because he's not just a humble king, he's not just a weeping king, he's a saving king, right? He's a reigning king, he's a ruling king, he's a resurrected king, he's the once and future king, he's the only king, he's the true king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That is King Jesus. He's on the throne now, ruling and reigning, and everything is under his foot. And one day, every knee will bow before him. And so he's not a powerless king, he's a powerful king. And so whatever you're walking through right now, he already knows and in a sense, he's already achieved victory over because he's not a king who just gives us sympathy. He's a king who gives us victory. Amen. Sympathy is helpful, but it doesn't change you, really. Right? You and I can be sympathetic. You and I can be humble. You and I cannot die for the sins of the world. Right? We can't. We can't. And Palm Sunday is just this place where Jesus looks at all that's gone wrong in the world and says, I'm going to take it on myself. Right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it on myself and all the brokenness and the pain and the waywardness and the prodigalness of all of these people, I'm going to take on myself. And so Jesus Christ walks into the heart of Jerusalem and he doesn't come to bring judgment, he comes to bear judgment. He comes to bear it because that's the only way that you and I can be changed. It's the only way from the inside out. And so he, he goes to the cross and he says, all, all of the violence of the world, all, all of the, the racism of the world, all of the destruction of the world, all of the evil, let, let all the powers of darkness exhaust themselves on me on the cross and go to hell and stay there. See, Palm Sunday is the last Sunday of the old world. 
I am so thankful that the Bible doesn't end in Genesis 3, and it doesn't end in Luke 19, 41, where Jesus just weeps and he says, ah, I wish something could be done. No, the narrative of Luke keeps going (laughs) to Good Friday, to Easter Sunday. Right, that's why we're people of hope. Listen, if, if if Jesus is the king, he can be the king of your life, right? If you know that king, if you know that he's humble and weeping and saving, that he's died for you in your place for your sins, that he's, he's given you righteousness, that you can be changed too, right? You can live for him and all the other things that, that just pull us and seduce us and, and allure us. We can actually just throw those crowns to the ground and say, we don't want to serve them anymore. We want to serve him. We want to crown him because he's the only one that's worthy. He's the only one that's going to bring joy. Truly, he's the only king worth the worship that we give other things, right? And that's what we want to be a people. And yes, sometimes you're going to worship other things and crown other things because we're human and we're not home yet. But keep pressing against that because that's who Jesus is. And I pray we would be a people who know his saving power. The title of the message is The Man Who Would Be King, which if you're an astute reader of literature or a movie watcher, old school movie watcher, you'll know is a Roger Kipling short story and also a John Huston film starring Michael Caine and Sean Connery from 1975. It's a great film. It's one of my best. My dad and my favorite movie, my mom hates it, so he doesn't get it, right? Sometimes, you know, parents, just, they don't agree. So my, my dad and I always watch it. My mom will just kind of walk out of the room like, you guys. Like, mom, I try to explain it to her, and it, she just walks away. And it's such a good movie. And, I use the title because I just, I thought it connected about Jesus in this way. The Sean Connery and Michael Caine go to a foreign country to become kings because they're just arrogant and delusional. But they basically are like, we want to become kings. And so they travel to a foreign country. This is like in the 1900s, early 1900s. And they travel over, you know, snow and all this stuff. And they get to this foreign kingdom. And at one point, Sean Connery gets stabbed, but he doesn't bleed because he has a medallion. But the people there don't know he has a medallion. So they think he's a god because he never bled. And then he becomes a king. And he's like, this is unbelievable. This is awesome. We get all this money. And so the, the plan was to stay there for a year to get all this money and then leave. And one year goes by and then two years go by. And what happens when you have money and power? Can you leave it? No. And so they end up staying there. And all these people are their subjects. And Sean Connery is the king of all these people, you know. And even though he can bleed, but the people don't know that. And at one point, um, Michael Caine comes in with a request from the people that they want Sean Connery to do, you know, the king. And he's like, I will not do that. A king does not, does not do that, you know. And Michael Caine's like, no, you've got to do this. You, you have to do this. And he's like, why do I have to do this? You know, there's, I don't have to do anything. I'm the king. And Michael Caine looks at him and he says, there is one thing that a king or a god cannot do. Only one thing. Chuck Hardy's like, what is it? Michael Caine says, a king or a god cannot lose face. Right? You've got to be powerful and strong. That's what it is. You've got to be powerful and strong. You cannot lose face. You have to save face. I remember watching that and thinking, wow. And in reading medieval literature or the history of kings and, and queens, right, what you see basically in, in the entirety of human history, almost to a king or a leader, is this idea that you've got to save face. You've got to be strong. You've got to be put together. Because what if you're not? Someone else comes on the throne. And you get killed. You get destroyed. And so you deceive people. You kill people. You have power. You come in with the war horse. Right? You have battles and wars and people die because you've got to save face. Because you've got to be on the throne. Because that's what being a king is. And that's the history of the leaders of the world, basically. Friends, Jesus Christ lost a lot more than his face on the cross. Right, we see a man, a young prophet, 
coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a baby donkey, weeping and wailing and sobbing. We see a king who does wear a crown, but it's one of thorns pierced with his own blood. We see a king who does have king written above him, but it's on a Roman cross mocking him. And we see a king who doesn't say to his subjects on the cross, you're going to get yours. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. There's never been a king like that. And if you're a Christian or not a Christian, you can scan history. You can scan historical kings, fictional kings. There has never, ever, ever been a king that lived for you, died for you, rose for you, and is coming back again for you. Are you kidding me? You can't make this up. And if you know this king, if this is the king of your life, it'll change your life. And it'll change the world. You know how I know that? Because I saw it again two days ago in Charleston. You know, the people, um, the people there, they got to speak um, to Dylan Roof, who, who shot them, their families, members. And all nine of them got to say a statement. You can watch the statement on YouTube. And I watched it, and it was unbelievable. I saw people linking to it. And one of the persons said, I'm not a Christian, but this is a powerful apologetic for Christianity. And two, all but one of the families had someone speak. And to a person, to the person that had just killed their mother or their grandmother or their son, to a person, except for the one that didn't speak, what did they basically say? We forgive you. And the outside world is just like, how does this even make sense? You haven't even buried your own, and you're weeping and, and crying. How can you possibly forgive this evil monster, right? How can you possibly do that? It makes no sense. And yet for the people there, it makes perfect sense. Because forgiven people forgive people. Not out of their own kindness or decency, but because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, because they know King Jesus, the one who forgave those who killed him. Right? That, that's what it is. And just a couple of, of statements from those. This is what they actually said two days ago to the shooter. Anthony Thompson, representing the family of Myra Thompson, he said this to the killer. He said, it's unbelievable. I forgive you, and my family forgives you. We would like you to take this opportunity to repent. Repent, confess, give your life to the one who matters the most, Christ, so he can change your ways no matter what happens to you, and you'll be okay. Do that, and you'll be better off than you are right now. The sister of DePayne Milton Doctor, she said this, I'm a work in progress. You join the club, and I acknowledge that I am very angry. She, my sister, who was a pastor, she taught me that we are the family that love built, and we have no room for hate, and so we have to forgive. We are the family, not just her biological family. We, the church, we are the family that love built, not just an idea, but a person built. A person who rode into Jerusalem lowly and humble, weeping and wailing. A person who rode into the heart of darkness so that you and I could have his life and his light. We are the family that love built. What is love? How, did, how, did, how, how do they know what that love is? First John says it this way. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and our sisters. They know the king. And there's never been a king like him. Let's pray. 
Our Father, maker of heaven and earth, we thank you for who you are, that at your very heart you are love and joy and beauty and justice, that you've made us as your people to reflect love, joy, beauty, and justice. We thank you for your son, King Jesus, the Messiah. We thank you for sending him to us, we, to bear our judgment and carry our sins, to come get us when we are prodigals, to announce and demonstrate the good news of the kingdom. We thank you for raising him from the dead by the power of the Spirit. Father, by your Spirit, help us gladly submit to King Jesus, and that by gladly, gladly, joyfully submitting to him, we discover anew who we truly are, and we're made to be. Father, we thank you for our sure and certain hope that one day Jesus will appear again, and when he appears, we shall be like him, no longer soaked in a sense of exile, but bathed in the light of his presence at the marriage of heaven and earth. We thank you for Jesus, our King, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, the Son of God, King of the world, who loved us and gave himself up for us. It's in his name alone that we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.